Children, I've got a question for you. I want to know how many of you will be decorating artificial trees in the next week or two. Do you even know? All right. Um, how many will be decorating real trees? Got a few more? Okay, good. Um, Wendy and I have been inconsistent over the years, but we in the last five have become real tree people. And we, like many of you who are real tree people, will travel to uh, Pea Ridge and we'll walk the aisles and we'll narrow down our choices and we'll finally pick one and we'll take it over and they'll shake it real hard and wrap it up and then we'll take it home. And we'll get it in the stand as quick as we can, we'll get it straight, we'll add water, uh, we'll cut the net so that it all falls out and then we'll start to decorate. We start with lights and then we... Uh, put ornaments on it, and then we used to, at times, would string cranberries or popcorn. Um, you may use tinsel. We now top it with ribbon. Um, and then time just goes by too fast, and before long, it's time to take it all down. Um, we start, of course, you know, in reverse order. And by the way, you know, our ornaments wide and varied. Some are children made. Some I made as a child. Um, others were gifts. Uh, some are mementos from places that we've lived and um, places we've been. Um, the newest, of course, is a main lighthouse um, that we picked up over the last couple months. Um, but time goes by much too quickly, and we have to take it all down. And of course, I begin to take those things down, and we do it in reverse order. And as I do, the needles begin to fall. Um, by the hundreds. Um, they're somewhat green, but they're very, very brittle, very dry and brittle. And by the time I get it outside in the trail you know, that I've left behind, I have to come back in and sweep up, but by the time I get it out to the burn barrel, it takes about five minutes to become a pile of ash. And that's because no matter how much water I add, it, it just, it's just not going to sustain it completely. Um, no matter how many decorations that we put on it, no matter what they are and how many they are, the reality is it looks good on the outside, but it's been dying on the inside since we cut it. And I think that's a really, a, a really good picture of this time of year for many people. I think it's a good picture because this is a time of year more so than any other where people present themselves to be one way on the outside and on the inside they're feeling completely different. David Strain put it this way, he said, Christmas is a season of mandatory cheerfulness in which the mythology and pageantry and celebration of the season quite often makes what we're dealing with all the harder. And I think he's right, because the season seems to bring out our frailty. Um, it causes us to put on a facade in order to fake it until we make it. For the days to be merry and bright, some have to put on false fronts to disguise the grief of death that's magnified. Uh, many people have to pretend to enjoy the myriad of 
parties and celebrations that leave them exhausted because of the energy that it takes to suppress their feelings of loneliness that are more acute than any other time. Pastor Strang goes on to say, if your Christmas is nothing more than the thin veneer of tinsel or wrapping paper, if all you've got is tradition and sentiment, Christmas is going to be very painful, a very painful time indeed. And our inability to simply turn on the, Christ, turn, to turn on the Christmas spirit with a flick of a switch reminds us how messed up we really are. Well, I want you to know our passage tonight tells us that there is more to Christmas than tradition and sentiment. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And if we will truly understand that, if we'll truly understand what that means, we will find a great deal of hope regardless of our circumstances. I want us to see three things from Isaiah 9, these first seven verses. I want us to see the despair of darkness. I want us to see the surety of salvation. And then I want us to see the birth of a boy. Let's pray before we begin. Father, by your Spirit and by your grace, would you grant power to the preaching of your Word this evening? Allow us, grant us the ability to apprehend and appraise your truth, awaken our attention and open our sorrows, but then con- and, and convict us and challenge us, but then please, as always, refresh us and encourage us, comfort us through the gospel this evening. As always, I'm weak and needy to this task to which you've called me, and so I'm in need of your spirit to fill me. I'm in need of your grace so that I might do something good for you this evening, something that would be beneficial to your church. So would you allow that to happen? Allow me to communicate with clarity and fervency, fluency and grace. And it's for the sake of Christ and His church I ask these things. Amen. Well, let's begin with the despair of darkness. And to do that, we need to understand the context of the passage that we're looking at tonight. Uh, We've made a significant jump from Genesis 12 to Isaiah 9. Okay, A lot's gone on uh, that we need to... Uh, talk about, but I'm only going to summarize it. Uh, I know you're grateful for that, but um, all all to say is that um, since the exile, okay, since the release of the people of God from Egypt, there's been a specific pattern that's taken place, and that pattern is the one one of idolatry, uh, judgment from the hands of an enemy, repentance, then deliverance and rest. Okay, so over and over again, we've got idolatry, judgment, repentance, repentance, deliverance, and rest for centuries. That's it in a nutshell. Um, And despite Israel's continued idolatry, God did not completely abandon His people. As a matter of fact, he repeatedly warned them of the consequences of their actions, of their idolatry in particular, over and over again, and he did so through the use of prophets. And Isaiah was one such prophet. God raised Isaiah up after the nation which had been united under David 
had been divided under his son Solomon. And Isaiah is writing to both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah and informing them that due to their idolatry, judgment is on the way through the nation of Assyria. And the picture he paints is not good, which is an understatement. In verse 22 of chapter 8, he says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And it's important for us to keep in mind that this darkness of judgment was a result of the darkness of their hearts. It was a result of of the sin that, that was made evident by the prevalence of their idolatry. And that idolatry was marked by superstition, syncretism, sensuality, prostitution, and uh, child uh, sacrifice. The darkness wasn't simply the oppression from the country or the evil country or the evil nation of Assyria, the joy-sucking oppression was a result of the sin within them. They had been warned and they had failed to listen. Therefore, they needed deliverance, not simply from a geopolitical enemy. They needed, they needed to be delivered from the spiritual enemy of Satan and the tyranny of their own sin. Now, brothers and sisters, I think you know as well as I do, we live in a divided nation whose government is broken. There's a perpetual tension between our nation and others internationally, and our economy seems to always be on the verge of collapse. Most of our leaders seem to lack character and and have a hard time making good decisions. They can't agree on the definition of what a woman is or what mother is, and they sacrifice our children on the altar of self-interest over and over and over again. But despite all that, the most significant problem we face does not lie outside of ourselves and cannot be fixed with anything within ourselves as the world often suggests. The biggest problem we face is within us. Our problem is sin. And the only way that that is going to be remedied is by something outside of us. We need a Savior for that to be fixed. When the darkness isn't dealt with, it leads to gloom, anguish, and despair, and eventual judgment. Our only hope is a Savior. Well, that's the context. That's the despair. But it's in that context that patience and kindness, the patience and kindness of God is put on full display. Look at verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. 
You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isaiah paints a contrasting picture from from the despair of chapters 7 and 8. One that doesn't just gloss over things, but actually speaks of reversal. So what we read in those verses, we read of uh, glory that will overcome gloom. We read of light that will overcome darkness. We read of joy that will overcome anguish. And we read of freedom that will overcome oppression. And notice the language. It's prophetic language, and it's language that most prophets use, but Isaiah was speaking of something that was going to take place in the future, yet you'll notice that everything is in the past tense. He's so sure that it was going to happen, he wrote as if it already had. The promise of God... He believed that God's promise was so sure that he spoke of it as already occurring, having already been fulfilled. In the words of Alex Motier, he says he wasn't saying it wouldn't happen immediately, he wasn't saying it would happen immediately, but that it was immediately evident to the eye of faith. Those walking in darkness can see the light ahead and are sustained by that hope. Isaiah was saying, Look forward to it. It is certain He has already done it. Even though the prophecy wouldn't be fulfilled for 600 more years, He spoke as if the light had already dawned because the sun had already risen. Salvation was that sure because God's Word is that sure. And as we read in Verse 7, the Lord was going to do it. Now, let's look at verse 6. Because Isaiah in verse 6 provides the source of that dramatic, that drastic change, that drastic reversal. He discloses that it's a who, not a what, that's going to make all the difference. He says, the fountain from which the glory and the light and the joy and the freedom is going to flow or spring is a child. He says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, and we could sing it together, right? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He said the point in history at which everything was going to change and turn would be the birth of a boy. Now commentators and pastors agree the emphasis isn't on what the child was going to do when he grew up. The emphasis was on simply the fact that the child would be born. It was was his coming, his mere presence was going to change everything. And that's because while his birth was ordinary in terms of 
humanity, in terms of how human births go, the baby himself would be anything but ordinary. He would be a gift from God to his people. He would be the savior that they needed. He would be a king who was going to rule and to reign and who would be like, and his rule and reign would be like anything, be more than anything they had ever experienced before. It would be unlike the failed reigns of any kings and any judges that had gone before. Verse 7 helps us here. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. His reign and his rule would never end. His government would never be overthrown. His purposes would never be thwarted. His kingdom would never be conquered. He would not serve or be beholden to anyone else. All other kingdoms were going to rise and fall, come and go, but his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. And while he reigned, he would bear the burden of his rule perfectly. He would be able to do all that he was going to do because of who he was. And as a side note, I was talking to Wendy about this yesterday. I went back and forth all week trying to figure out if I was going to disclose who this child was here or wait until later. Um, Friday, I was going to wait. Yesterday, I thought, they already know. Might as well do it here. Right? Isaiah said, though judgment had begun, Zebulun and Naphtali had already fallen. It would be from that area that the sea, despite the fact that the judgment had come and they had already fallen, that um, it would come from that area, right? It would be from that area that the seed of the woman, the promised seed of Abraham would come. And the darkness would give way to the brightness of God's glory. And, and we know that happened because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just as Matt read earlier from Matthew chapter 4, um, right after Jesus had, had overcome his temptation of Satan in the wilderness, we read this. I'm going to read it again. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested and withdrew into Galilee, and after leaving Nazareth, he went and Isaiah might be burned by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that... What was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. The child was a baby whose birthday we celebrate. The boy was Jesus. As Matthew said, and as the angel, actually the angel Gabriel said, his name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Again, the promise. Light overcame darkness. Why? Because in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Glory overcame gloom because He is, according to the author of Hebrews, the radiance of God's glory. Joy overcame anguish because the salvation He provides causes us to rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. 
freedom came, overcame oppression because it was for freedom that He set us free. And if we've been set free by the Son, we've been set free indeed. Scripture tells us over and over and over, this is the Lord Christ. And Isaiah calls Him, says His name, said His name was Wonderful Counselor. Again, while an ordinary human birth, He Himself was not ordinary. He is extraordinary. He invokes wonder because He is wonderful, and He is wonderful because He is a transcendent supernatural wonder in and of Himself. And unlike all others who govern and rule, who need all of these counselors around them, some need more than others, He doesn't need a one because He's all wise. His decisions are perfect because His understanding is comprehensive. And there's nothing in Him that causes His judgments to be compromised. He's wise, He's just, He's righteous in all His ways. Isaiah calls Him mighty God. So not only is He human, He's also God. And again, verse 7 helps us here. He speaks of the throne of David and, and over his kingdom it, uh, to establish it and uphold it. And Isaiah is saying he's the son of David who, who has assumed his father's throne. And again, as David Strain points out, there's, but there's, there's more to it than that. And I want to paraphrase him. We need to read this as, as those, uh, we need to read it in the context and the expectations of those who um, we're in the Old Testament, the, the people of God of the Old Testament. For example, in, in Psalm 2, and we've seen this before, in Psalm 2 we find King David speaking of, his, of himself as king, who, uh, speaking of a king who was still to come. And in verse 7 of Psalm 2 he says, The Lord said to me, You are my son today, I have begotten you. So here's a king who is the heir to David's throne, who will come to reign and rule, and who is also at the same time the only begotten son of God. So Dr. Strange says, so we have a baby boy with the same nature we have, um, who is the natural descendant of David, who is also at the same time the only begotten Son of God, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit before all ages, full of grace and truth. Right? We have a God-man. So this all goes back to the wonderful, does it not? Jesus is a transcendent, supernatural wonder because He's God incarnate, God in the flesh. He's truly God and truly man. Two natures, inseparably united in one person. And Isaiah says He is a valiant warrior. And He has fought for those who are a part of His kingdom with divine power. And we're going to come back to that at the table. Isaiah also said he's an everlasting father. And to be clear, Isaiah was not a modalist. Right? We need to clear that up. He didn't believe God was only one person and then manifested himself in, in different ways. And it's, at one point he manifested himself as the father and then he manifested himself as the son and then at another time he manifested himself as the spirit. The Bible says that the the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. The Father is not the Spirit of the Son. The, Spirit, uh, the Son is not the Spirit of the Father, and, and the Spirit is not the Father of the Son. 
And chapter 2 of our confession says, In the unity of the Godhead there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor, nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. We believe in a triune God. That being the case, and that being the testimony of Scripture, what is Isaiah talking about? What does he mean? I think there are a couple things. One, I believe he is using an Old Testament metaphor for rulers. Rulers were said to uh, rule as fathers over their people. And so, I believe Isaiah is telling us that he rules in a fatherly and a paternal way, lovingly and compassionately. For the good of his people. Secondly, I also believe that it's referring to the fact that it is the Son who reveals the Father. Right? It's, if we've seen, Jesus himself said, if you've, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because the Father and I are, are one. So he's revealed the Father to those who are a part of his kingdom. And, and we also have to remember, let's not forget that it's through the Lord Jesus Christ, it's through this baby born, that we have adoption as sons and daughters of God. Finally, Isaiah said that he was the Prince of Peace. The word Prince goes back to his authority, back to his rule and his reign and his government. He bears the burden of ruling, and he does so with authority. And through his rule, he's brought peace And He will one day bring full and final peace. It's not only a subjective peace that we feel or experience. It's an objective peace. The valiant warrior has won. He has triumphed over his enemies and our enemies and therefore we have peace. Brothers and sisters, please hear me this evening. No matter how gloomy or dark... You, no matter the gloom or darkness you may be experiencing, no matter the depth of your anguish, no matter the extent of your bondage, there is hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows you. He knows us inside and out. He knows us because He's God. But he also knows us because he's human. He understands and empathizes and sympathizes with our infirmities and our frailties and in our sorrows. He knows and understands our loss, our losses and our grief and our loneliness and our abandonment. And his wisdom is limitless. He's the perfect guide through whatever valley you may be walking through. He knows the way, and He will lead the way out. He will never leave you or forsake you because He came to earth for you. And He came to fight for you. He has fought for you, and He has won. He took on flesh and through His death crushed the head of the serpent. He's made 
His and our enemies a footstool under His feet. We are His. He is ours. That will never change. He has brought the Father out into the open and revealed Him to us. And He has a a profound love and compassion for each one of us. And through Him, we're no longer children of wrath, but sons and daughters of God, adopted into the family of God. We're not orphans. We're co-heirs, according to promise. And the Lord Jesus is our older brother, who is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters of His. He's lifted the burden that we seem to carry of our own need to rule our own lives and sit on the thrones of our own hearts. He's taken on that burden upon Himself. He's also lifted the burden that we carry for for our sin and the guilt of our sin. He's again taken that upon Himself. He's bore our sin. He's carried our sorrows to the cross And we, therefore, can take on His yoke and rest. Because His burden is easy. His peace is ours. And His shoulders are big enough for everything that we attempt to carry. He is big enough. We have peace with God and peace from God because He has done it all. The Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for your and my and our every need. And very simply, I beseech you to come to Him. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Seek Him and you will find Him. Let's pray together.